Okay, welcome to episode two of Brian Talks to Humans. This is the Carl episode. I pushed this episode out quickly because Carl has a time-sensitive announcement that he makes in the interview and because I have a major announcement to make. Technical difficulties are now a thing of the past. It's a really long story. Uh, It took a lot of different things to fix. In the end, the final fix was pushing a button on the mixer that I didn't know had to be pushed to give the microphone enough power. So, moving forward, the sound will be better. Uh, There will be some episodes where I'm going out of HQ and to other folks' places, and I'll need to use a portable system, but I think I have a better portable system than the two USB mics I was using, and it won't be echoey anymore. So thank you for your patience. Uh, I'm glad we got this fixed. I got this fixed. We, what did, come on. Uh, and so uh, this is the Carl episode. Carl is a friend of mine. Uh, I know him since the summer, not too long. Uh, he's a fellow member of uh, International Socialist Organization. Neither of us represent ISO as far as our opinions being ISO's opinions. We're just two ISO members chatting. He does some activism in the Newark area. I think he's a pretty interesting dude. Uh, and as you'll find out in the beginning of the interview, also at least part-time reptilian. So here's episode two, Comrade Carl. Okay, folks, welcome to another episode of Brian Talks to Humans. Uh, we're coming at you from the mobile studio. This time we're in Newark, New Jersey, and today's human is... Hey, um, I'm flattered, actually, that you think I'm a human. I'm actually a reptilian, so you might have to change the name of your podcast to Brian Talks to Humans and Reptilians. But uh, in my humanoid form, I am Carl Schwartz of Newark, New Jersey. Greetings, Carl. So, um, let's talk about your reptilian form. Uh, Is this one of, like, the uh, lizard people who run the the world, or just a regular run-of-the-mill reptile? Yeah, see, I'm I'm really upset. I never got invited to be a part of the global conspiracy, so I'm just, like, an average working-class lizard person, you know, so I don't really get all the benefits of being able to control, like, the world's supply of gold. (laughs) It's really disappointing, actually. So uh, let's talk about your your intro music. Um, you chose uh, what was it again? Uh, it's the song called "Countdown" by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Okay, so why did you choose that for your intro music? Uh, I think I discovered uh, the Giz, as fans call them, just because I thought their name was uh, kind of funny. And uh, they're they're a prog rock band, and, and I was a big nerd in high school, and I liked prog rock like uh, Rush. And yes, and King Crimson. Mm. And so discovering King Gizzard as like an adult, it kind of brought me back to that nostalgia of when I discovered all those bands when I was a teenager. So uh, do you fuck with Umphreys McGee? You know, they're more of a jam band than a prog rock band. I'd make a pretty big distinction between the yeah, two genres. Yeah, I'm just saying that they're, they haven't, they're influenced by yeah. some of the prog rock. No, that's funny because I have seen Umphreys McGee live in upstate New York when I was like a long-haired, hippie-looking guy. And um, I thought it was pretty boring, actually, really? for a jam band. Yeah. 
it was um maybe i'm just not smart enough to understand the the, the level of skill that they play with maybe yeah no i think you're a pretty smart dude though oh thank you um so you had a long hair hippie phase um tell me about that because that's something i don't know about you yeah um i've got some pretty hilarious pictures and if anybody wants to follow me on instagram i think i've probably put up a couple of of that era of my life and i i might still be a long-haired hippie guy if i didn't start going bald at a very premature age like i was literally like 22 when i'm like shit my hairline is like not what it used to be but i, I had luscious beautiful hair up until i was about 23 mm. i think right out of college is when i i cut it um and yeah i thought i thought it made me look cool because um, I, I was a pretty big nerd and i thought if i had long hair that would at least you know i would look less outwardly nerdy to people tell me <laughs> tell me about this this nerd thing uh how were you a nerd when you were younger um yeah what well, maybe i mean i listened to prog rock like you know i would listen to like 30 minute long king crimson songs in high school not something a lot of high school kids are into um maybe not even nerdiness so much as being you know a little more on the introverted side when i was a kid and uh, playing a lot of video games like like World of Warcraft, and uh, I did like Magic: The Gathering, the card game. Although I didn't actually play it very much, I more just collected the cards and looked mm. at them. Yeah. There's <laughs> actually there's actually a Magic: The Gathering club at the school where I teach. Oh, I would totally if I worked at your school, I would be the mod of that club <laughs> for sure. Um, so uh, uh, when you're listening to 30 minute King Crimson songs. With your long hair and collecting Magic the Gathering, this is this is Creskill, New Jersey. Yeah, Creskill, which is a uh, a tiny little town in Bergen County. Yeah, I think it's gotten bigger because they've built a lot of apartments. But when I was growing up, I think there were like five or six thousand people in the town, like a mile and a half long. Not even much of a downtown. So is Creskill like? Um... Money Bergen County or no? <laughs> yeah, it's that money part of Bergen County. Maybe not the most super money. I think like Tenafly and Alpine and mm-hmm. some of those surrounding towns were a little more moneyed. Mm-hmm. But uh, there there were some pretty rich people in Creskill. I grew up, you know, I wasn't one of the rich kids in town. We we had a pretty modest-sized home, but there, there were some mansions in town. Mm. So um, we're gonna uh, fast forward a bit to to now and just the uh, the political outlook and class outlook that I know that you have. Uh, do you think um, growing up around that uh, that wealth influenced uh, you think how you're at where you're at today? Yeah, I mean it must have. And you know when I think about the people I went to high school with, I don't know how many of them have like much of a class consciousness. I think a lot of them, especially like the richer kids, just kind of went into like banking and real estate and, you know, the same industries their, their parents were in. But um, I, I remember becoming aware of it because even in a rich town like Creskill, like there are low income people and, you know, they're, they're a little bit more hidden than they might be in like mm-hmm. in a city where you might have like the poor neighborhood. In, in Creskill, it was just like there wasn't a neighborhood, you know, specifically. But um. I have specific memories of, you know, kids getting free lunch and them having, like, a sort of work-study program where low-income kids would, like, volunteer their time in the cafeteria mm. when I was growing up. And I remember just, like, 
not really understanding that, but being like a little disturbed and like mm. curious about it. Yeah, yeah, that that, that does seem a, uh, a little off to me, a lot off to me. Uh, I can't, I can't imagine um, that sort of, you know, putting people out there invisible like that uh, would would fly today. Yeah, I don't know um, how politically correct that was, but I do remember a couple kids working in the cafeteria at lunchtime. And they were like, you know, what people called the poor kids. Mm. So, uh, you're you're growing up. You're listening to King Crimson. Uh, video games a big part of your youth, or? Oh yeah, I mean, especially in the suburbs where there's not a lot of public space mm-hmm. to really just like hang out. Um, yeah, video games were big, definitely. What kind? What some? What were some of your favorite back then? Um. You know, I was like, I was always a Nintendo system guy, so like, Nintendo 64 was the first one, probably most of high school was GameCube, but um, I had an intense World of Warcraft phase, and StarCraft, all those Blizzard games that you could play online, and um, I had a summer that was entirely indoors, like, no sunlight touched my skin, because I was (laughs) playing so much World of Warcraft. Oh yeah, you did mention that before, I'm sorry, so... um... What's a, when you say a Blizzard game? Is that another word for those massive MMRP or on uh, whatever? I'm, I'm, I'm botching it. <laughs> yeah, it's some uh, MMORPG, that massive one, multiplayer one. online role playing game. I yeah. think that's the correct acronym. Um, Blizzard is the company that made a lot of those. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's All what right. I mean by Blizzard. Okay. And they're actually going through a really interesting battle right now where some employees want to unionize. Very unionization in the video game industry. Mm. Another class conscious topic that uh, that crosses with my nerdiness, too. Right, right. (laughs) So, um, let's then get you to college. You're you're bringing this, would you say... uh, budding or burgeoning class consciousness to to college or or is it still not really um on the front burner for you and and you don't really get radicalized or hip until until later on in college yeah no college i did not get radicalized or super hip i was kind of just like a dumb i i don't don't think i got i don't think i'm smart now but i i don't think i was like the least bit smart till i was at least like 25 or 26 i think i was pretty dumb for for my four years of college, and I was more interested in just partying and hanging out. I didn't really think too deeply about uh, about too many things. So, um, so where'd you go to college? Uh, SUNY, the State University of New York at Geneseo. So a lot of people can't say that name. They say Geneseo. I think my sister calls it that. Uh, it's Geneseo is the the proper pronunciation. Interesting. So, um, is, isn't that, uh, didn't Opie from Opie and Anthony go there? Yeah, he actually did. Yes. (laughs) I don't know how I remember that, but yeah, I remember, uh, I remember whenever somebody says Geneseo, I always think of Genesee Cream Ale. I don't know why, but I associate the two in my head. It's, the two have nothing to do with each other, but that's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, that was one of the many beers I drank while I was there. (laughs) Okay, there you go, yeah. And, uh. (laughs) About Opie, like, yeah, that's a pretty shameful alumni. Um, And I think they actually, I would have to look into this, but I think the college has used him in their marketing material. I would have to look into that. Like, there's nobody better that they they were able to find. (laughs) 
So, um, it, so is the surrounding area there just you know pretty uh, boring and cold, or or what? Um, yeah, I mean it's significantly colder than New Jersey where we are right now. Uh, it's very beautiful though. Like if you're into outdoorsy stuff, it's a great place mm-hmm. to go to college. So you kind of just uh, coasted through college and and got your degree. What was your degree in? Uh, English lit. Okay. And what drew you to that? Um, you know, it might have just been like I had the most credits in it, and I had to pick something out when I was a junior. Right, right. Uh, I did like to read, though. I was into sort of that, uh, you know, pretentious college guy stuff like David Foster Wallace, and I liked Cormac McCarthy, Don DeLillo, you know, that whole group of white guys that college white guys get really into. I was into all that. Is David Foster Wallace, is that uh, Infinite Jest? Yeah, that's Infinite Jest. This okay. is, uh, you know, don't read it. It's not worth reading. But, uh, <laughs> it's massive. It'll waste an entire year of your life. I think people just use that as a, as a status signal that they're reading or have read Infinite Jest. Yeah, that's what it's kind of known for. I don't <laughs> think it's worth your time. <laughs> yeah. I got enough footnotes in the nonfiction that I read. I don't need it in my... In my novels, although to tell you the truth, I don't really, I don't really get down with fiction much. Um, yeah, they say that's the progression like men go through. Um, you know, even fiction readers just migrate to nonfiction, and I, I've definitely gone through that. I almost never read novels anymore. Yeah, it's almost like uh, the world's on fire, and I don't have time to, <laughs> you know, right. read, read about shit that ain't happening. You know. Yeah, like, I mean, fiction's great for exploring your emotions, but uh, (laughs) there's also, like, a lot of stuff I want to know about that I feel like I can only get that in nonfiction. Right. So, after college, straight to grad school or no? Uh, What did I do after college? I didn't go straight. I think I had a year in between where I was, uh, what, what was I doing? I don't think I did a whole lot in that year. You know, I think I graduated college in 2011 with an English degree that I felt like was entirely worthless in terms of getting into the labor force at the time. Okay. I thought it was worthwhile in terms of, like, the stuff I was able to learn, but in terms of being an economic unit in the economy, I, I felt like it was totally worthless. So... Uh, so then you decided, well, you know, I don't have anything marketable. I'll just go to grad school. Is that kind of how you, how you got there or no? Yeah, I think I would have, you know, I worked at a tutoring center, the Huntington Learning Center. Um, but you know, you don't make any money doing that and you're, it's not a stable job. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I felt like the only way I'm actually going to be able to move out of my parents' house is by going back to grad school. So... Um, so you had, you had explored education as a career for uh, for a little while. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I was tutoring kids in the SAT, and uh, you know, there's so many different private school exams, uh, like for middle schoolers going to high school, mm. and I was I was tutoring a lot in those. It, it's not very inspiring things to teach kids, of course. I don't think anybody goes into education because they want to teach to the test. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. No. I mean, you would know that, Brian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I liked, you know, when I was tutoring kids, I liked talking to them. Like, what are you reading in your class? Or like, what, what are you studying in history right now? And I, I thought those were like the more meaningful parts of just that tutoring experience. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking like, oh, that would be cool if I could be that teacher. Mm. 
But you ended up um, not pursuing it ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I do now is is pretty related, but it's sure. I, yeah. I mean, I'm a I'm a public children's young adult librarian right now. That's what I do in um in a public library. So it's not super far removed from from being a teacher. What what made you think um, that you wanted to make that shift from education as far as a classroom educator to uh, librarian. Yeah, so I had uh, I had three years in the classroom. Okay. Um, I had I was in AmeriCorps and I did I did preschool in Newark. Mm-hmm. I uh, I was in Bloomfield Middle School for a year. I remember you telling me about grad that, school, yeah. mm-hmm. and then I taught in uh, Jersey City. It was my first like real full year. Um, I was a ninth grade English teacher at a high school at a newly formed magnet school there. And um, I think I switched to librarianship. I mean, I had three pretty rough years in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I uh, I could not control a class. After those three years, I could not... So bad at discipline, mm-hmm. behavior, I just felt like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get this right. And um, I, I found it very stressful, and I thought librarianship might be a little... Might be similar enough, but a little more laid back. Mm-hmm. And there's no grading, which is really great. <laughs> that's very true, yes. And that's a lot of my weekends is grading and laundry, all the exciting stuff. So um, so has, has, has being a, a librarian proven to be less stressful and, and a oh, yeah. gig thing? Absolutely less stressful. Um, yeah, like no grading, no lesson plans. That's probably the best part of it. Not really discipline. Um I go home and that's it. There's nothing I ha- can possibly do for this job at home. Right. Whereas a teacher, I think you're you're always working on the clock and you're you're always thinking about things. So, what's a typical day for librarian Carl? You know, that's a good question. Um, I want to say there is no typical day <laughs> as a librarian. Yeah. No, um, like I'll, some of the fun things I get to do. I really like ordering books and kind of like curating the collection. I do young adult lit, which I actually didn't know a lot about until very recently. But um, it's been really interesting learning a a little bit about young adult lit and like the trends in that. Um, And then doing public programs. You know, kids don't really take out a lot of books anymore. They're coming to the library. It's like a space to hang out. Mm -hmm. Especially in, you know, Hoboken is so crowded. That's where I work. Um... They they don't have houses to hang out in. They have tiny cramped apartments, so the library becomes like a second home to a lot of a lot of teenagers. And I get to play video games, do art classes, um, cooking classes, just a lot of fun wow. things. Cool. Do they have a drag queen story hour at a Hoboken library? They do. All right. It's it's a big hit. Yeah. Very very popular. We got we got that uh, going on in Montclair now too. Yeah, yeah. The drag queens have really capitalized on story time, and they do, they do a phenomenal job. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so, so the Carl that that I know in the brief time that I've known you is, you know, fellow dues paying member of the International Socialist <laughs> Organization. It had to come up, right? So, um, tell me how. You got from, as you were saying, in college and shortly after, not too politically active or radical. How did you get to being a, a card-carrying, so to speak, socialist? 
Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think, like, a lot of people my age, back in 2012, Occupy Wall Street was, like, a huge, huge thing. Um, I had just graduated college and felt pretty aimless. And, like, it's this movement where it's, like, we're going to create this new society and, uh, you know, the banks and, and the rich, you know, they need to be held accountable. That, that really spoke to me at the time. So I spent a lot of time in Zuccotti Park um, during that time. And that was when they had a library there. I was taking a lot of books. Mm. And that's when I really felt like I was uh, becoming politically educated. And just talking to people, I think that's the best way. Like, no matter how many things you read, like, actually talking to, like, people who've been part of struggles, that's that's going to radicalize you. And there's just, like, such an amazing cross-section of people mm. involved in Occupy who I was able to learn from. I went down there a few times myself. I didn't spend nearly as much time as it sounds like you spent there. But um, we did a, a grade-in once where all the, oh, educa- nice. the teachers uh, graded in the park and sort of uh, held signs and stuff, uh, sort of, you know, bringing awareness to uh, education worker issues. Yeah, I think- And then we did, uh, on Columbus Day weekend, we did a teach-in about uh, Columbus and... That sort of thing, and uh, there's a couple other things uh, going on there. But uh, there were a ton of teachers down there. (laughs) Like that might have been the teachers and maybe nurses were like two of the largest represented professions. Mm -hmm. I think at that encampment. So, Occupy ends, and what what does Carl do? Yeah, I mean that's when you know I was going back to grad school, becoming a teacher, getting my teacher certification. Mm And, um, you know, I was kind of, I I was following the Chicago teacher strike a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, um, when when I was teaching in Jersey city, you know, I kind of got interested in like what the union was doing and, uh, becoming aware of like union politics and stuff like that. And I think, you know, that was when I, I started thinking like, oh, like, you know, this is where political organizing kind of should be at like you know thinking about it a little bit beyond like just electoral politics and who you vote for Mm -hmm. and um yeah i think that made me interested in like sort of independent leftist organizing like outside the democratic party Mm -hmm. um yeah that was that was a big shift definitely so it sounds like um between occupy and, and and after that you're you're um Autodidactic. You're you're a self-taught socialist. This is stuff that you've pursued on your own. It's not like you took a political theory class or something like that. Right? Yeah, I mean, it was just going to things. I think you have to do things in person to really become a, a socialist or a radical. Like you know, you can read thousands of books or take thousands of classes, but it really mm-hmm. comes from the experience of being involved in a struggle. I think, you know, that's what we always say in ISO. And I really think it's true. And I think Occupy was, like, the thing I participated in that made me, like, really want to start moving in that direction and and teaching myself and stuff like that. So uh, what... I mean, I I know this kind of conversation between two socialists and it kind of seems, like, obvious, but... What is it about socialism that that you think draws you to it, and and what is its what is its power? What is its message? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, just thinking about the world beyond profits and wealth is like a really powerful thing. 
especially, you know, I've always thought I was never raised religious. I never went to church or temple or or anything like that. But, um, you know, I think just building solidarity with with different groups and even thinking about that on an international perspective, I, I think it's very spiritual and empowering. Hmm. And uh, it, it's very therapeutic to me. And um, Talk more about that, the, the therapeutic quality of, of being involved in this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... You know, I've been to a lot of things as a socialist. We've done a lot of work with um, ICE detention in Newark and North Jersey. I was at a rally just on Friday um, in solidarity with Venezuelans. And, you know, these are people, you know, I don't know any Venezuelans in my personal life, but just feeling that connection to, you know, people, you know, thousands of miles away. And, uh, you know, feeling like you're a part of something is bigger than yourself. I, I, I think it's very powerful. And I think it makes you feel more like a human. It's kind of like the opposite of, of socialist, of the isolation a lot of people feel under under neoliberal capitalism. So let, let me let me go back just a, a little bit. So you talked about Occupy as being a big turning point. You know, what was sort of already in Carl that spoke to? <laughs> <laughs> that say it didn't speak to other, you know, other people in your generation who had a completely opposite reaction. Yeah. You know? Oh man, I gotta dig deep for that one. I think you know. I remember being young and being really interested just in like the kids in my school who were like the social outcasts and like the weirdos. I don't think I was one of those people. I wasn't bullied. And uh, I wasn't cool, but I also wasn't bullied. I was kind of, you know, just there. But I think the kids who were, like, really weird and marginalized, I was very interested in talking to them, getting to learn about them. So I think that was, like, that always drew me to, like, that just that countercultural perspective. Um, and especially when I did see kids getting bullied and stuff, you know, it, 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 it made... I wasn't courageous enough to stand up, but I did really you know, want to support kids who were, who were kind of, like, outsiders. Especially in, like, a really rich suburban school district. There was, like, such an, you know, and it's such an environment of conformity, I think. And, uh, you know, seeing these kids who were just, like, weirdos, I thought that was just, like, really cool. And I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of that. So if there's a, a through line here, then it's, it's your, um, not in a, in a, on helping these poor folks way, but certainly uh, an identification with being against oppression and marginalization. Yeah, definitely. Um, and definitely, like, you know, in my my suburban school district, it was like, yeah, the kids who were poor, or the kids, you know, who, who were just a little weird or just, like, didn't fit into what was, like, you know, the prevalent culture of, of Creskill, New Jersey. And so here you are. Age. You just turned 30, that's right. Yeah, yesterday. That's right, happy birthday. Thanks. Um, so here you are at age 30, uh, and you're not uh, not looking at the uh, the marginalized uh, uh, students, but the marginalized people of the world. Right. You think, right? So uh, talk a little bit about, um, you, you mentioned certain struggles that you, you've been a part of. Talk a little bit more about sort of um, your compass, how you 
see the world as as a socialist, as somebody who's against marginalization? What are some of the, the core beliefs that, that you have? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And uh, I think maybe to a lot of people not involved in socialist movements or left movements, it's like, why are you always talking about Palestine? Like, why do you possibly care about Palestine? How does that affect your life in any way whatsoever? That's a, that's a very good example. Yeah. yeah. And, so you know, I think an answer I give is I have a lot more in common or I feel a lot more. I can't say I have much in common with the average person living in Gaza, but I can say I feel like my struggle is a lot more attuned, in line with the goals of, you know, people in Palestine than it is with a white, rich capitalist man working on Wall Street. Um you know, the international working class is the class I identify with. And that goes from, you know, people fighting for for just their basic human rights in, in Palestine to people fighting, um, you know, for self-determination in, in Venezuela to people in Central America who are, you know, fleeing violence that has been fomented by the United States and every single president and Elliot Abrams, we all have learned about recently, <laughs> going going back decades. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what specifically has being a part of an, of an organization meant for you? It's one thing to be a socialist. Like I was a socialist for a long time. I didn't join any organization, you know, up until just this past summer. So, what is being part of an organization? You think meant for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the whole idea. You can't do anything alone. Like, you know, I kind of, I identified as a socialist probably since college, even when I didn't really know very well what that meant. I, guess, I knew I wasn't a capitalist, and I knew, you know, I knew I didn't identify with the Republican or Democratic Party as, like, a strong partisan. Um, but I think what it is, like, you know, you can't do anything alone as a socialist if you're trying to actually change the the arc of history like Marx and Engels talked about and I think that's that's the key there right like for me I felt like I was on the sidelines just kind of like decrying capitalism and its evils but I wasn't fucking doing anything yes exactly I I, I gotta be part of of something yeah no no matter how small it is I've been to rallies in Newark where five people show up and I'm like hey at least the five of us got to connect and, and talk about this that's better than me just sitting in my apartment and uh, tweeting about it. So what are some of the local, you mentioned ICE detention, um, you're working, uh, uh, supporting the uh, water stuff in Newark? Yeah, I've been trying to um, get involved in that because I think that's really one of the important struggles going on in Newark. And um, it's definitely, you know, mobilized a lot of people. And, um, I mean, this is going back to the 90s. They think the Newark water supply is not being treated properly. And um, I was at an information session with the NRDC, the Natural Resource Defense Council, and the new caucus of the Newark uh, Teachers Union. It's very possible many, many thousands of people were have lead poisoning who have who still live or have lived in Newark at some point. And I think that's a travesty. And... You know, you got to ask yourself, why is this always happening in, in poor black and brown neighborhoods in the United States? Why is this happening in uh, in Creskill, where I grew up? Why is this happening in Newark and Flint? 
and um you know when you think of it that way like yeah you know it brings a lot about the history of racism in the united states and just environmental racism and the structures of racism and i think i think that's super important so uh why do you think why do you think the reaction um of the mayor who comes from an activist background Ooh. been not what we would hope man you know and it's really upsetting back in 2014 i was in jersey city actually but i kind of was following what was going on in newark and i i was rooting for Raza baraka <laughs> and um you know i maybe it's just power changes you Maybe it's just the structure of what, you know, the political the political structure of Newark and how even as mayor you can't really change a whole lot. I don't know. I mean, I think you can be cynical about it or you can just say, like, that's the reality of what can get done in, in the electoral realm. I don't really know. Mm. It's pretty sad, too, because he's still courting Amazon to get here. Yeah. While this water crisis is going on, he thinks he writes an op-ed in the Washington Post. Oh, he did? <laughs> yeah, the paper owned by Jeff Bezos. Oh, right, right. <laughs> like, if he wanted to sell Newarkers on Amazon, he could have written in the Star Ledger. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Could have written in the local paper, but he goes to the Washington Post, which I just find hilarious. I always forget that. Yeah, I mean, just read the Washington Post, see what their coverage of Amazon is like. <laughs> I'm paywalled on most articles, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the truth. Um, so, did you go to the wall protest thing today? Or no? Yeah, I was there this afternoon. What was that like? Um, yeah, it wasn't super crowded. I'd say maybe like 50 people were there. You know, it was the ACLU and Make the Road, two of like the big... Um, like sort of mainstream groups that have organized rallies in Newark. You know, I, I agree with their message. It's just like, yeah, this emergency declaration, it's wrong. There, it's a lot. It's based entirely on a lie. Um, we should oppose it. But um, you know, a lot of the messages too is call call your local legislators. Yes. Yeah, yeah it, it's very much Democratic Party yeah. alignment. Um. What kind of message would you like to see? Yeah, that's a good question. And I feel like we do have to provide an alternative. Or not even an alternative. Like, you know, just like what's next or like what's the greater critique. And, um, you know, I think groups like that probably put a lot of faith in the Democrats to solve the problems. And, you know, our message is like we're putting our faith in building working class power. That Cory Booker and uh, Robert Menendez calling them or even, you know, rallying to their support is a losing cause. <laughs> well, uh, I think you have a lot of fucking nerve because it's a national emergency and how dare you. I, I you know, I as, I as a New Jersey resident in almost my entire life, nothing makes me more happy than making fun of Cory Booker. I think he's the most buffoonish politician Maybe one of the most buffoonish politicians out there. 
did you, did you ever follow? I think that they don't post anymore, but it was called Cory Booker's Cape. It was a Facebook page. No, I'm not familiar with that. Like his faux heroism. That yeah, that's. I'm sure it was hilarious. I mean, there's just so many things you can dunk on with this guy. It's great. What I love is, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm a vegan, uh, and a lot, and I've seen a lot of vegans post like, "Oh, finally a vegan's running for president." I'm like, I mean, there's a lot more criteria that we need to. Yeah, w- what what can he do for you as a vegan other than just like promote it? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean it's always good to have visibility and awareness. Right, right. Is there a vegan New Deal? I imagine, you know, he would maybe not sign certain legislation about agriculture or some shit like that. But, you know, uh, yeah. I don't think he is that much of a spy. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's not, you know. Um, yeah, but, yeah, he's, I mean, I, you know, I remember when he was mayor of Newark and, you know, I had some friends teaching here. Um, yeah. That was... And, you know, he, he, he basically opened up the city to charter schools and was very anti-public education yeah, that, that, I think, is his legacy here in, in this city. Yeah, that's probably, like, how he had the biggest impact on Newark was definitely, like, there's charters everywhere. Now, I think the school system probably looks nothing like it did 20 years ago. Despite all that Zuckerberg cash, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if anybody local cares enough, you can read uh, The Prize by Dale Rustikoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it gets documents really well. Like, what did that money actually go to, and did it make a difference? <laughs> so, uh, I know that we've said, uh, you know, electoral politics is one weak slice of a slimy pie. Um, but uh, how do you think twenty twenty is uh, is shaping up as far as the the candidates go? Right? Who do you think is gonna <laughs> is gonna slither their way uh, to the top? Yeah, of the which of the reptilians will uh, <laughs> will be our nominee? Man, I just don't want to pay attention to it. Even I guess, okay. like, yeah, I almost want to just say like twenty twenty, like just wake me up and yeah. maybe I'll go to the voting booth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, the horse race is is the, the stuff that people get. You know, so, yeah, so obsessed over. But um, I've been following a little bit. I'm you know. You know, I think it would be too cynical for me to say I'm not going to vote at all. I would go and vote. I would. Um, I'm not campaigning. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not knocking on doors. I'm not making calls. But yeah, I'll cast a vote for him. Okay. I I don't think I can say the same for uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know if I know enough about, like, what happened legislatively to give a good answer. Um, You know, it does seem he might have been thinking, like, the most important thing is because federal workers get in their paycheck, which, you know, I I can understand that. Um, Yeah, I I don't think I can have a good answer. I mean, I think, you know, I definitely support not one dollar to the Department of Homeland Security. Which covers ICE and the Border Patrol. 
Um, you know, if you have, if you want a serious movement for abolishing ICE, like you can't fund any of this stuff, not even a penny. And um, I, I think some, like the Ocasio Cortez, are kind of adopting that mentality. And you know, I, I don't imagine it becoming very big among the Democratic Party, but I, I think that's the stance I would give. Okay, on the lighter side, um, <laughs> if you could pick a book, a movie, a song, a play, an album, you think that kind of says, this is Carl, Carl identifies with. No, oh, man. I know, it's tough. <laughs> put people on the spot. All right. Um, big fan of Phil Oaks, the folk singer. Um... I have his entire discography on vinyl. Right on, okay. Yeah. I should have picked that as my intro song, maybe. Love me, I'm a liberal. <laughs> me, I'm a liberal. <laughs> Love it. You know, I, I, he's my Bob Dylan, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely huge fan of Phil Oaks for, for music. Some of the other things. Movie. Uh, if I'm not prepared, I don't know if I can think of it. The Dick Ch- I thought Vice was pretty good. The Dick Cheney one, that's the last movie I saw. Uh, some interesting stuff in there. Anything that you've read in the, in the past or recently that like really helped you sort of form your political outlook? Oh, yeah. Um, the book I read this past year that I thought was really great and also funny, which isn't true of most nonfiction books, uh, Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Phenomenal book. And... Uh, I could just really relate to that because I think I've probably worked some bullshit jobs. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Anything to plug? Anything to plug? Any protests coming up? Any movements you want to be, that you want to... Uh, yeah, uh, come to Rutgers. Man, uh, I don't know the dorm or the building. Maybe uh, we can put a link in the bio. I'm talking on a panel next Saturday... And it's about um, what is the future of the Democratic Party and should there be like third parties? And, you know, you, you probably got a little bit of that from this podcast, but you'll, you'll get even more if you want to come to that. It's next Saturday at Rutgers. That's Saturday, February 23rd. Fe- February 23rd. I believe it's at 3 p.m. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll post the link to that somewhere. Rutgers, Newark, not New Brunswick yes, or Camden. Yeah. Uh, what I'm doing is on the website, I'm posting show notes. And so I can I can post any link that you, that you want me to. Yeah, to that would okay. be great. That's a big thing coming up. And uh, I think that's it for the moment. Yeah, yeah. Of what I got going on. Okay, outro music, Kinks, Holiday. <laughs> Tell me about it. I, uh, I love the Kinks. I think they're as good as the Beatles. Um. Ray Davies, just hilarious, amazing vocals. This King song, it just kind of sounds like an outro to me. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and it's about having a really bad time on a holiday, oh, okay. but it, it's funny. It's very sarcastic, and it's super British. I don't think I've heard any band that has that sings in a more British accent than the Kinks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, they're great. It's from the album uh, Muswell Hillbillies. And uh, it's a really fun, it's a funny album, but with great songs. It's not like Weird Al. It's like the music is first, but the lyrics are also really hilarious on this album. And I think it's really, really good. Well, Carl, I appreciate you giving me your time. Yeah, we're shaking hands. You can't see that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's it. And uh, uh, 
we'll talk to you later. All right. Okay, so that was my interview with uh, Comrade Carl. I don't have much to say uh, in today's outro. I'm just really fucking stoked about figuring out the technical difficulties and and uh, the improving sound quality moving forward. I'm also going to try to get a pop filter for this mic and not pop my peas so much. Uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, you can go to BrianTalksToHumans.net. It's your one-stop shopping. You'll find links uh, to contact me. You'll find the backstory of the podcast. And uh, importantly, you'll find a button to donate to the cause on Patreon. I'm trying to recoup some of the costs of the train rides and gas that I'll need to do on-location podcasts. And, of course, the uh, hundreds of dollars that I sunk into equipment that is finally working. We're finally getting the equipment working. All right, folks, stay human. So you see, don't believe in the system To legalize you or give you your freedom You want rights? Ask them, they'll read them But every flower got a right to be blooming Stay human, because the streets are alive With the sound of Bye. Can I hear it once again? Bye. Tell your neighbor, tell a friend Every box got a right to be booming Because the streets are alive With the sound of Bye. Can I hear it once again? Tell your neighbor, tell a friend, every flower got a right to be blooming. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky